I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. We are at CSM. Looks a bit slightly different to our usual uh, setting. On my right is Simon Aaron, features editor of Motorsport, and to my left is a man who's been called a pioneer, an icon, uh, the Marlborough man, uh, often just hokey though. It's John Hogan. Um, so we are at CSM, as I said. How come you still dip in and out of Formula One? Can't keep, um, can't, be, can't keep away. <laughs> can't keep it. One, I can't keep away, and two, I keep getting asked to come right. and, and, and talk to people about things. So that's what I do. I'm a I'm a consultant for CSM. In terms of chasing sponsorship and uh, that deals. as well, but but essentially using your address book um, to look up and annoy right. old friends and things like that. You know. And your journey to this point um, has been varied and taken very different avenues and different elements of Formula One but it started um, at Aintree that was the first Formula One race I went to yeah it was the Aintree 200 um, I remember some you know St- uh, Sterling Moss was driving Jack Brabham was driving the BRMs were there the Maserati was there 250F I don't know who was driving that um, probably Jean Berard um, actually, not Jean Berard. He was driving the Ferrari, two fifty F. Don't know. Um, but I, I, I saw the Van Wals, not in fifty seven, but in fifty eight there, because I went back the next year to see right. the race as well. Um, but it was a an ex- in in those days they used to have which I'm, I'm sorry to say they don't anymore, um, non-championship Formula One races, um, which were, y- you weren't compelled to enter like you are in a proper Formula One race. You you turned up as, a, as sometimes as a private owner and thing. And um, it was, uh, it was a, a fascinating time. Can I just ask how, I mean, you, you're, you were born in Australia. How, how, how did you pitch up in what was then called Lancashire, now Merseyside, in the in the late fifties? God, um, my father was in the army. We we travelled uh, to Japan. We li- lived in Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore. Um, then I went to I went to school in the UK, and uh, I got very friendly with with all my my best friend at school was a guy called Malcolm McDowell who was called Malcolm Taylor that was his real name but Malcolm McDowell the actor uh, and his fa- father had a pub hotel um, fairly near the fairly near Aintree and so that's how I that's how I sort of came came to it it was it wasn't it wasn't some sort of a pre-existing passion it was just oh yes no 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 I I I'd been um um always interested in motorsport um we um as i said i lived in singapore as a child and um there there i mean it was pretty primitive in those days because we're in the army and there was no entertainment or magazines or newspapers or anything like that but there was one copy of of autocar in the house and um i used to read it cover to cover every day and um at the time, I was probably thirteen. No, no, I wasn't. I was, I was eleven, um, and I can remember it was. In it was um, Sterling Moss had won the French Grand Prix in a two fifty F Maserati, uh, which probably must have been fifty six or something like that. So that's that's how it all all came about. 
living in Singapore at that time, did you get to see any races on the old McDonald Road no. road, road circuit? No, no. The, the only motor race I saw in cars. Singapore was, was actually a hill climb. And the most um, exciting thing in the hill climb was a, was a, um, a Cooper Jap, JAP engine, and a uh, horrible thing. And uh, but it did make a lot of noise, but that was the only car of any note in the whole in in the whole event. You're kind of when you came over to the UK, kind of timed timed it exactly the same time as the Aussie invasion of Brabham and McLaren, and it was a bit of a coincidence, or did that kind of pique your interest? Also? No, no, the, that the, I'm not that old. I mean, the <laughs> the uh, the Australian invasion came after that because I uh, because I wasn't a dentist or anything like that. Um, Jack and Jack, Jack and Bruce essentially came over at the end of the fifties. Yep. Big beginning of the sixties, because um, Jack had won the world championship in what fifty nine. Yep. Yeah. So that and and then he heralded the colonial invasion, and then which was, was quite extraordinary. I mean, um, one year in. One year in Monaco, which must have been early 60s sometime, there was um, 16 colonial uh, drivers on the grid at the start of the Grand Prix. Um, and and they, used to, they used to include South Africans and Rhodesians in, in those, but it was, it was quite amazing. So was it a coincidence that you ended up, um, when you got to Marlborough, that you were falling into the Formula One Circles. Um, well, I I was I eventually went out and got a proper job. Yeah, and um, I was working in advertising, and uh, one of the agencies that I was working with, which was called Wazies, had the, had the Coca Cola business, and the, a couple of guys at Coca Cola said to me, "Oh, one day you know a bit about motor racing, don't you?" I said, "Well, a bit." So they said, you know, can you have a look at it you know, for us? And so I was off and um, got to know some people in motor racing. And, you know, one thing led to another. I mean, the, the, the biggest plus was that I, through that contact, I could, I could actually get in free. <laughs> so um, I, I, I was going to every motor race that you could find. And your work with James Hunt later on, was that separate? No, that was coincidentally uh, the same thing. Um, right. Um, I, was, I was sitting in my office in Wazies one day and a, and, a, and a guy phoned me up and said, there's somebody in reception who wants to see you. Uh, I said, well, you know, who's that? Anyway, long story short, it was this bloke called James Hunt who'd heard of me through somebody else because they were intrigued by the fact that I knew something about advertising and that I was also knew something about Formula One and motor racing. So sponsorship was all the rage then. Couldn't we, could we put two and two together and come up with three, you know, sort of thing. And uh, so, yeah, I spoke, spoke to James and uh, that, that was a, f a first step. Yeah, and then you also, you at the same time you speaking to, you were striking up a friendship with Ron Dennis? No, Jerry Birrell Jerry was Birrell. the other person that, yep. that, that I was dealing with a lot. Um, I mean, Jerry was the real hot shoe because he'd won the Formula Ford European Championship, uh, I think, and, um, and, and he'd won it easily. Um, so, he, you know, everybody revered him. And... Um, then I met Ron through all that because Jerry knew Tim Schenken and um, Tim was driving for Brabham. No, he wasn't. He was driving for, for, for Sports Motors, right. a Midlands Formula 2 stroke Formula 3 team, and which was effectively the, the Brabham Formula 2 team. And so, through being friendly with Tim, got introduction to Ron Toronac. Um, he's a very special guy. 
And still going strong as well. Still going strong. I read that somewhere the other day. I think it was in one of your magazines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've never seen a car being driven on, on the road quite so fast. I, I, once had to, I, he, <laughs> I once asked him how to get to Annapagusa. And he said, "Follow me." And within about three minutes, you, you'd lost it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I, I had a similar experience going up to Silverstone. You know, going up the back way, and, and you end up in in front of Stowe. Yes. I was trying to follow him up there. I mean, he was just through, and there's all those junctions. He's flat through every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and he's yeah. into his nineties. Yeah, it's okay. It'll be all right. Don't worry, mate. It'll be good. You know. <laughs> you knew. I guess Ron Tornarak and then Ron Dennis. Well, no, I mean, I knew I knew Ron Tornarak. I didn't know Ron Tornarak. I was introduced by Tim right. to Ron Tornarak. And Ron, um, I mean, I didn't know at the time that he was probably angling to sell the right. Brabham team at that point. But he was asking me about sponsorship and how it worked and so on and so forth. Uh, so it was a little bit the blind leading the blind. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so that, that was how that came about. But, um, and, and Ron Dennis was, had, had, he was the official Brabham Formula 2 team at that point. Uh, and, and Graham Hill was one of the drivers, as was Tim Schenken. I think that's right in saying that, or probably not, I'm not sure. No, I think that is cool. I mean, for, uh, there, were, there were races when, when Graham, um, Thruxton is a race I remember, it was Graham and Tim were driving. And then Mal with Marlborough, around, was it slightly later they were then teamed up with the likes of Williams and BRM, but that was slightly before you arrived at that was slightly. That was done before I arrived, I'm glad to say. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, I joined Marlborough in September 1973 and um, they'd, they had, Marlborough had already done a deal with BRM and part of the thinking behind that was actually fairly interesting. Um, a guy called Ronnie Thompson, who was an international rugby player, was the president of Philip Morris at the time and therefore he's very sports oriented. And he he liked the way Frank thought and talked, and so that was Frank's sponsorship sort of taken care of. And then um, the the uh, the BRM situation was even more interesting uh, because one of one of Ronnie's ideas was to have um, a, a driver of a different nationality in each car at, at each different race so right. that's why we ended up with sometimes three cars in a field sometimes, sometimes five sometimes I mean, five <laughs> with a dutchman a german an austrian a, you know an australian everything all, all in the same all on the same team um it was an interesting idea I'm, i wouldn't just poo poo it out of hand because um you know, given that the entry in in a Grand Prix in those days was quite low, I think I think it was about sixteen on average, so they weren't exactly struggling to fit you in the field, you know. Um, but it it gave, uh, and this is what Marlborough were really after. It gave them an international uh, feel to the whole thing, and. Uh, just remember that in those days, no television. I mean, no television. So um, other than that, uh, trying to find out the results from phoning up the phoning up the newspapers on a Sunday night. I mean, I used to do this, phone up the newspapers on a Sunday night, get put, put through to the sports desk, and you'd say, <clears throat> can you tell me who won the Formula 2 race at, at, at Zolder? And they, they, but that was that was the only communication. So was Mo winning Monaco the ideal place for them, really, because it's the biggest race? Well, it was the it was. You're right. It was the only. Let me get 
get it correct, I think it was only a race that got on TV. Right. Um, because ABC, who were the rights holders at the time, uh, would only televise three events, Monaco, Indianapolis 500 and Le Mans. Um, you know, in the, hard, to argue, hard to argue with. Yeah. I mean, there's, if, if you're looking for international coverage, it's not a bad way to go. Did, um, nowadays, it's estimated that Mercedes-Benz spends about $350 million per annum on its Formula One programme. Can you remember what the what the sort of Marlborough sponsorship budget was the first contract you were involved with, which was uh, I guess was probably the McLaren one in seventy four. I mean, you know, it's tiny. I mean, um, to be honest, I can't remember. But if it was, if it was more than five million dollars, I'd be very surprised. I think it was in that order, and, and then. Um, it gradually ratcheted up over the years, thanks to Ron Dennis. I was going to say, Ron, Ron, was probably, <laughs> Ron was probably the major trigger he for was. that one. Yes, yeah. What separated um, BRM Marlborough to McLaren Marlborough? Was it simply money, or how did it make? How did it explode into such a big? Oh um, well, enterprise. we could see, yeah, it, it, we could see. I mean, it was pretty evident that we could see that um, BRM weren't going to be around for long. Right, I mean, they, they they were struggling. They had some very good engineering. You know, they really did, as you probably can remember, or you wouldn't because you're too young, <laughs> but they, they really did have some very good engineering. Um, but there wasn't somebody there wringing it by its neck and, and actually making it happen. So we, we just knew we had to go. Um, we, sorry, we had to go or they had to go, one or the other. And um, so the McLaren team was around and available. Um, and it was, you could see that it was a very good team, a car, drivers. Uh, so with a, a few minor adjustments, um, Yardley could only afford one car. So they, they left, they, they moved sideways. And Rob Walker ran the car with Mike Halewood. And we had the main team with Emerson and um, Denny Holm. Yeah. Which was great fun. And and won your first race together. Den, Den, Denny won the first and you won the first Yes, he won, won, the, won the he won the Argentinian Grand Prix, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well remembered. <laughs> <laughs> I was 13 by then. I'm not going to forget that. Yeah, yeah. How big a shock was it when Fittipaldi left? Um, Were you working on a backup or was it a... This is no, no, it was... He, he, he left cold turkey. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, re he really did leave absolutely cold turkey. And um, so I, I can remember as clear as anything... Um, I was at home, and um, phone goes. Teddy Mayer says, "You know, we've just lost uh, Emerson. He's decided to go and drive um, um, a Copasuka, or Copasuka as it was called. <laughs> you can cut that bit." And. Um, So, uh, so we we sort of you know mumbled uh, about the options. So the options were, were James Hunt or Jackie X. Um, I never told James this, but I I I, I voted for Jackie X. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so um, in the end, we you know we went with with James. And I had I had the task of going and finding James. This is a Saturday night and a, a Saturday wet night in London. You know where do you start? Um, in in the in in the mid seventies. So I phoned and phoned and phoned, phoned his home in Spain, and uh, his wife I think answered the phone. Um, 
and said, oh, you might find him here or there or there. Anyway, um, I found him at Haskus, um, and uh, he, he was entertaining Jane Burbeck at the time. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I went round there. I went round to the house, and uh, he tried to play hard to get. And I thought, you haven't got any options. <laughs> you know, it's either this or, 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 or you can go and drive a Lotus. And I knew he didn't want to drive a Lotus. I mean, there was quite a superstition about, um, you know, driving a Lotus in those days because so many of them had had accidents. And I, anyway, I knew he didn't want to drive a Lotus, so that, that was my card. Cut a long story short, we got a, we got a deal signed and sealed by the middle of the following week. What you said initially, you 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 favoured signing X. What were your reservations about James? Oh, I, it wasn't any reservation about James. It's just I knew X was a very good driver. I mean, you know, X had uh, he was what second in the German Grand Prix the week uh, the year before, uh, something like that. Uh, I mean, he was very good. He was really very good. And um, so it was as simple as that. A judgment deal. Cool. A lot's made of the uh, the cloves question with James not being willing to adhere to Marlborough's shirt, trousers. Yeah, no, that was interesting. How did how did, how did you get round that all? Uh, well, we played, played poker again, you know. He said, I, I can't wear that shirt. <laughs> I said, well, you're going to have to, you know. Uh, well, no, I can't. Well, no, I can't pay you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that that was. Uh, you know. <laughs> and talking of clothes, um, when I think of Marlborough in the pits, you see the red trousers, the white shirts. That was kind of one of a kind at the time. What was the reception of the other team? Did they look at the, the Marlborough guys and think? Look at those. Or the In fairness, I think JPS might have might have beaten us to the draw on that stuff because they were all in black, weren't they? Yeah. And um, so I think that was one step ahead. Um, I've always kept my eye on on Penske R Roger yep. as a uh, as a as sort of a a guide to all these things, and you know for years. Roger had the, f the smartest turnout yep. forever in the whole of motor racing. So I w always, um, you know, kept an eye on him. And, and then so, and um, Roger was quite close to McLaren at, in, in those early yep. days. And uh, so I, I picked up little hints from that and said, well, you know, that's the way to go. You've got to be smart. Was Ferraris, I mean, Ferrari who were the top dog, so to speak, in Formula One. Um, they, they were still walking around in shell khaki overalls, which looked smart, but they, they just looked smart, you know. Was that the difference between Marlborough and um, the other brands that were sponsoring them? They just made it that little bit more professional, that little bit more yes. tidier. And yeah, exactly. Simpler. That was the real difference. We wanted to look slick. What was just? I'm quite interested from a marketing man's perspective, given that, as you said earlier, there was that's very, an assumption. <laughs> <laughs> given that um, there was, I mean, I remember the British Grand Prix. If it was on at all, they'd show five laps, then they'd go back to Haydock Park to show the horses walking around the flipping parade. Yes, I they know. weren't even racing. I know. So, I mean, where was the value? And I know you could advertise in papers and on TV in those days and magazines, mm. but where, where was where was the value for Marlborough? Well. Because it was still an underground sport, relatively. Yes and no. Um, we could see that advertising, as it was termed, was basically coming to an end. Uh, and we needed to be in and make ourselves known in the marketplace. And Formula One and motor racing in general was, you know, one of the ways to, to go about it. And... Um, so that's basically what, what they did. In other words, tr trying to get everything out there before the black curtain came down. Simple as that. So did you sort of 
Does that mean you kind of front load the sponsorship money at the beginning? No, no, no. I, no, we didn't actually, as it happened. I mean, we were the only show in town, I think is the thing to remember. Um, so uh, everybody was happy to talk to us, <laughs> um, which changed over time, you know. In, including Bernie? How was Bernie in the sort of early days? Was he looking... Well, Bernie was Bernie, you know. He'd, he'd tell you that on the first hand, I don't want you blokes in this at all. You make everything look untidy, leave, you see. And then he said, but I can do a good deal with you. <laughs> so that, that was, that was, there was always that dichotomy with Bernie. <laughs> how, how was your personal relationship with Bernie? Fine. Still is. Did you ever kind of two strong personalities both pushing the same way oh we had lots of fights yeah 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 sure sure but um with with bernie he's the sort of person you're always going to have disagreements with uh, on principle on matters of fact etc and i guess the same goes with ron ron dennis ron yeah exactly the same yeah <laughs> yeah exactly the same was there a lot of, sort of early in the early days when you were lots of blow-ups and no no ron was very ron was ron is still a great learner um, i mean he absorbs things he watches and understands and you know so ron in the beginning was you know was all eyes with just wanting to learn how things worked and go and um ron kept, became um awkward and principled towards the end <laughs> So were you investing in Ron as much as anything else when you, when you all sort of orchestrated the takeover? Were you investing as much into Ron as you were the future of McLaren? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, without Ron at that point, McLaren didn't have a future. Um, I mean, you, you, uh, all the car, just for example, all the cars were very much of muchness in those days in terms of engineering. I mean, they were, you know... Um, all, all Cosworth engines, all aluminium tubs, etc., etc. Um, but you could see, or you knew that, that Ron was the person who was going to make, who was really going to make a difference. And when he and John Barnard came along with the carbon fibre proposition, um, th then you had to pay attention. Why did that conversation go when you're almost? elbowing Teddy Mayer out of McLaren and how did uh, Teddy Mayer was is was a gentleman Teddy was um, knew that that things were getting really tough for him for him and his team and that he he realized he needed new new blood he didn't like Ron he didn't particularly like Ron Ron didn't like him much uh, but there was respect um, and ha had all things being equal, um, Teddy would have gone for Ron anyway. Top of which, uh, Teddy had John Barnard, and uh, John had previously worked at McLaren on the M23. So there was a there was you know some feeling of homeliness there, and um, so it, it became a quite a natural fit in the end and in terms of um the uh, the persuading marlborough was there any persuasion needed at marlborough to in to make sure that the money was given to ron to take over mclaren yeah yeah i, I mean not persuasion as such i mean didn't have to bend their arms up their back or anything um you, you know my job was to keep everybody totally informed in a very logical way to tell them, um, you know, what was happening. Um, to explain that, you know, things were changing, um, things in Formula One were changing, and these were the options. That's what you did. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Um, we've had some quite a few questions from readers um, about that similar sort of time. About, <laughs> <laughs> about Gilles Villeneuve. Gilles. Yes. Um, there's the famous story about the pit lane and the pit boards, the negotiations... Um, a couple of people have asked if you were involved in that little charade, I guess, when um, I think Ron counted an offer with a pit board put in 2.5 and then Gilles changed the 2 to a 3 and then... To be honest, I don't know that. Okay. It's one of the stories I don't, I don't know. It doesn't sound very plausible, right. I must say. Um, Gilles did flirt with us. I mean, Gilles started with yep. the M23 as a as a as a as a guest appearance uh, and made a very spectacular uh, debut, yep. um, which resulted in him going to Ferrari. Some years after, about two or three years after that, Gilles rang us up and said, oh, the Ferrari is such a handful, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I think, it, I think it was a handful. So he said, I'd love to come and, and drive, a, drive a McLaren. God knows why, because the McLaren wasn't any, any better. I think a r- lot of rumours sprung out of that. Did he get... How come they didn't sign him in 77? Seven. Seven. <laughs> why did we sign him? Yes. Because uh, we had Patrick Tambay. Simple as that. Yeah, yeah. We were looking for a more European, better known driver. I mean, remember, Villeneuve at that point, nobody knew him, yep. who he was from a former three driver, you know. So d- did you, what did James tell you about Gilles? Or did That's an interesting story because um, James and Alan Jones went to drive in a former Atlantic race. Yep. Things drivers do for money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Went to drive in a former Atlantic race at Trois-Rivières yep. in Canada. And this bloke, Villeneuve, absolutely blew the pair of them off. You know, two world champions got zapped by this, this Canadian nobody had heard of. And anyway, James, who was always interested in young up-and-coming drivers, it was his yep. hobby almost. Um, said to me when he got me, he said, you should look at that guy, he's just fantastic. Believe me, he's fantastic. He zapped both Jones and I, you know, so... Um, Did James know to come to you rather than the team? Well, it, it, we, we were the team. I mean, we, yeah. uh, we were all, we worked, we all worked as a team. Um, you know, the... the the, the the team as a team and the sponsors as a sponsor and we, we knew we had a collective job to do. Yeah. Just moving forward a few years, you said that uh, keeping an eye on young drivers was a bit of a hobby for James. I mean, I worked with him quite a bit during the 1980s when he was looking after Irvine Hacken and McNish, people like that, the Marlborough Juniors. Yeah. Um, I mean... Well, he was really, I mean, he seemed very actively engaged at the track. Yeah, he was. Working yeah. with him. And, and the, the, I guess it was a, a frequent channel of communication with you yes, guys, yeah. keeping abreast of their progress. He was, he was properly into it. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that we were a, a little bit ahead of the game. I mean, we're, now all teams have got junior teams and things like that. Um, and we just had drivers that we'd spot and keep an eye on and help them along sort of thing. And um, he he was instrumental in in guiding us in that area. Well, not I mean, 
uh, it was like a prototype. Didn't always get it right. Well, so, I mean, it was like a prototype Red Bull system, except yeah. you, you never ran out of drivers. But um, I mean, of the Marlborough-sponsored youngsters that yeah. actually made it through to the Marlborough, Mick Hackenden yeah. got through, but not many of the Marlborough-sponsored youngsters. They got they, they got into Formula One with other teams and things, but not all that many of them sort of stayed with the Marlborough well, family, the, did they? The, no, and um, because you, you couldn't really do oh. that in those days because you didn't have enough cars. I mean, you'd 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 get the bloke into Formula One stay friendly with him and so on and so forth and hope he'd succeed and that's frankly all you could do um but so it's it more of a marketing exercise than the necessary than yes than yeah. trying to groom drivers yeah, for, yeah, for more yeah. mclaren absolutely we had a question actually about uh de Cesaris, uh, asking why uh Marlborough stuck with him for so long um he was potentially very quick um That, that 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 was it. You know, Just he was quite quick, and he he. Where did he end up? Alpha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, under our auspices, he ended up yeah. at Alpha. Then he went to Ligier, I think, at the end. But no, no, we we stuck with him for a number. Of, but you see, that's a good example. We're always friendly with him right to the end. Um. Um. So so that was important. And then talking of uh, quick drivers, um, Senna. And like, did Ron come to you to say, if you want Senna, you have to pay him, was it 25 million? Was it an easy yes? I assume it was. <laughs> it was the, the, the way Senna came to us was a bit more contorted with that. And this was, um, Senna came to us um, through a guy called Domingos Pitardi. And Domingos, who again is a, is a spotter, uh, I mean, he's a businessman in his own right, but he's he's also a spotter. Came to me one day, he said, listen, I've got this young Brazilian. He said, I promise you, he's remarkable. So I said, all right, so he would have a look. So we, we did a little contract with him. I think it was $10,000 or something like that to, to wear a Marlboro badge. And um, so that meant that we had hold of Senna, that we had an opportunity to talk to Senna as, as he progressed. That's very valuable. Um, then he, um, Senna was very uh, independent, shall we say, and w we, we had a test day at Silverstone for up-and-comers. Senna was part of that up-and-comer. And of course, what did he do? He blew them all into the weeds, the whole lot of them. But, unbeknownst to me, Ron had already made his mind up who he wanted. <laughs> um, which was Jonathan Palmer. Right. Don't know why Ron wanted Jonathan Palmer, but anyway. Must have asked Jonathan that one day. <laughs> um, of course, Senna then drove for two different... Senna then said, said, well, I don't want to drive for McLaren anyway, I want to drive for Lotus. Camel Lotus. Oh, Camel JPS Lotus. JPS Lotus, Lotus, yeah. So that's how that all came about. And then, of course, he came back to McLaren through Honda. Right. So the 25 million didn't come from Marlborough? Came no, from no. Um, so, so, um, there, there was no huge amounts of, of, of monies to begin with. It got demanding towards the end of his career uh, when... I mean, you're, you remember in those days, everybody was playing um, um, chess with engines and chassis and designers, and it was going all over the place. Honda had offered the engine uh, in a tortuous you know, deal to McLaren, which included Prost. Um, I can't remember the exact you know, details, of it, but that's how it all came about. When we ran out, or when the team ran out of engines at one point, <laughs> um, because Honda had pulled out. Pulled out to the end of 1992, yeah. Correct. And so Ron was stuck with making the, making the best of a Cosworth that he could. And... Senna, I mean, th th this was the sort of the five-card trick. 
I'm not driving with you guys until I've got the best engine. We can't get you the best engine. Doesn't matter, I'm not driving. So, which we said, well, that's fine. How much do you want to you know, drive? So it was all about money. In the end, uh, we said to him, okay, a million dollars a race. Uh, so so that, that, that became the, uh, that became the rate card. Right. Where did the Penske test come into that? Because we had a question from uh, a guy called Entropy um, asking how much involvement you had in that. Well, it was <laughs> because it's all more Penske was more at the end of the yeah. at the end of the day, and I think Roger, Roger, uh, Ron just rang Roger and said, "Listen, I want to, I want to find, I want to set down a a baseline for um, uh, Ayrton in an Indy car to see what he's like." Remember that at that point in time, there was this tremendous pushing and shoving going on between IndyCar and Formula One car. I mean, for, uh, IndyCar was being written up on a regular basis as being the successor to Formula One. Uh, so, you know, you had to react to that. You had to um, make sure that Formula One got its, its just desserts. So it was just you and Senna that went to America? Oh, no, no, no. Ron, Ron did a lot of pushing and shoving on that as well. And uh, Senna said at the end of that, um, I've learned what I need to know. What, what does he mean by, by that, do you think? Whether we could afford it or not, right. that was probably, that's probably <laughs> as simple as that. There was no science involved. <laughs> during during the, um, the heat of the Senna-Prost era at McLaren, I mean, did you manage to maintain a good, strong relationship with both of them? And if so, how? Uh, charm, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, I must say, I'd feel quite comfortable if Alan Pross walked in here now, we'd be old friends. Uh, I mean, we, we speak on a regular basis when I get dragged along to a Formula E race or something. Um, no, we're, we're friends. Senna, absolutely friends. Absolutely. I mean, but how, how did you keep yourself away from the politics? Um, the politics between who and whom? Well, between, between I mean, Ayrton and Alan, obviously, they reached a point where they weren't speaking to each other and they were communicating via their engineers who were, you know... Walking, you know that was quite easy. You just say, listen, that's your problem. Um, and it, and it, it really was their problem. You know, if they couldn't talk to each other, then fine. I think moving forward to when Marlborough and McLaren split. How, it was quite a strange situation then when you had, Ron had West kind of at the end of a phone and you had Ferrari basically signed and ready to go. How did that conversation go with Ron? I suspect it would be quite easy with Ron. You just say, I'm leaving and he'll say, okay. It was a bit of an Arnold Schwarzenegger conversation. <laughs> As Louise the baby. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was that. You know, I mean, I knew he he had Ekrem on a plane up to, to, to Germany. Literally, an hour after I told him it was the end of the road. You know, simple as that. Oh, was it always going to be Ferrari? Was there anything that would have persuaded you to stay? Well, they put it another way around. There was no alternative. It was, it was in the in the non in the in the garagistas field, as Enzo Ferrari used to call them. That there, there was only McLaren, and it was either McLaren or Ferrari, or you know, or one or the other, or both. Yeah. Um, there's a question here about the when Ferrari later on had Marlboro on the car, but the word Marlboro wasn't anywhere near the car. On, on the actual car. Um, was that because it was Ferrari it worked or because the association of Marlborough and Ferrari had been there so long that Marlborough could stay on the car without his name actually on it and still have the benefits of it? Or were there no benefits of Marlborough staying on the Ferrari into the 2000s? So let, let me just go back to the very early stages because I think you're jumping around in terms okay. of, of dates. Yeah. 
to, to begin with, uh, the, the, the deal we did with Enzo Ferrara himself uh, was, I mean, he was always, he, he was always a great games player. So, you know, I said, uh, you know, we, we want a bit of Marlboro on the car. Ah, this is very difficult. Uh, you know, his, his great quote was, don't forget, you're talking about the Pope, not the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it was a, so anyway, long story short, I keep saying that, but they are long <laughs> stories. Um, he said, you can have something the size of a postcard. Let's start with the, let's start with the driver's name. Okay. So Peroni, right in, in the, in the Marlboro badge. And that's how it started. Over time, I just, you know, ratcheted it up until I got the back wing. Yeah. Got the back wing. Then I wanted the whole car. Can't get the whole car, but you could get a design on the car that looked like the whole car. Yeah. So that's what I did. Thinking of current sponsorship in Formula One, um, the last few years, if you look at the Sauber a few years ago, it had zero branding at all. We had their anniversary on the side. Where's the money gone? Gone or where's it coming from? Well, both. When and when? where did it go? And is it going to come back? Income in, for, in Formula One to the teams is quite substantial. So they're not exactly you know, scratching along on, the, on their bum. They've all got enough to survive a season on, and maybe more than one season. Now, the, 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 the secret is, is to get more money. Um, and that's where sponsorship comes into play. I mean, Frank is struggling at the present time, not got a lot of money, not got a lot of sponsorship, but nevertheless, it's survivable. So that's quite a straightforward example. So you think there's a future for Formula One without sponsors, potentially? No, uh, there'll always be sponsors. It's just sponsors come at it in, in different ways. I mean, remember, going back into the dark ages, there were no sponsors. Uh, on the Brabham Cooper, sorry, on the Cooper that Jack drove, there was an Exxon or Esso, Tiger, yeah. on the same. That was because the team was sponsored by Esso, believe it or not. I mean, that was their, that was their sponsorship. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that takes on, on, um, on different involvements. Where do you think the next money could come from? Because there's a question here, I can't remember who it was from, but is that the, um, you've had oil come and go. Oil companies, cigarette companies, don't know, banks, finance companies. Is yeah. it, it's the future technology companies in that you could have a Google car or a Facebook car. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I've, I've often asked myself that. And the, 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 those companies are selling a different sort of a proposition. I don't know what um, if, you, if you had you know, Google on a McLaren for the sake of argument. I don't know what that adds. Um, uh, Google is a hugely big, well-known brand name in the world. Bigger than Formula One, in a way. Um, unless you can think of some other reason for it, for being, um, then I'm not sure it works. Well, you, you who were on the Prost in the early 2000s? It didn't, it didn't, re, didn't, did them a great deal many favours, did it? That's right. What happened to Prost? Well, <laughs> Bang. Yeah, and, and you who almost as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that question was from Steve Brockbank. So I should credit that to him. Uh, Quick one about uh, Jaguar, if that's okay. Mm. Um, I read a thing that a quote that you said they should have gone to Le Mans rather than Formula yes, One. Um, absolutely. How did how close did they get? Because it's to part of their knitting. You see, I always believe, believe companies and uh, and sports undertakings should stick to their knitting. You know, stay stay what you're good at. Um, the only com the only motor racing company in the world that's been been good at Formula One and Le Mans is Ferrari exceptionally um, and and I think Jaguar tried to you know follow that and it was never going to work because uh, they had no they had no DNA 
in Formula One. Was there resistance the, uh, to the Le Mans question? Well, I guess there was a death, it didn't happen. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, never, I never felt, I mean, in fairness to Jaguar, they, they, were, they were being pulled this way and that way at the time because they were partially owned by Ford yeah. and they, this and that, and Ford didn't want to do this because they'd done it with the GT40 and brrr, you know. Um, so it's not fair on the management of Jaguar. I think left to their own devices, they would have gone back to Le Mans. And of course you replaced uh, Nicky Lauda there. Um, oh, in a, did, in a weird I? way. I didn't know. Did yeah. that ever come up? Yeah, he got the money. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're running out of time. Uh, so one quick question to finish. Actually, two quick questions to finish. Um, were you a Marlboro Reds or a Marlboro Lights man? <laughs> Lights. That's from Matt Endon. And um, one question from Pete Sounds like Phillips. a former brand manager. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Bede Phillips, who asked quite a few questions, uh, which I hope we've answered for you. Um, do you ever plan to write a book about what you've no, done? No, no. I'm too busy being interviewed by you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Simon, anything to add? No, just uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Not thank at you. all. Yeah, thank you. Was uh, that a quarter of an hour? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so thanks, thanks for joining us thanks for sparing your time um, thanks to CSM for hosting us uh, thanks Simon thanks Alan uh, we'll be back soon with a MotoGP season review I hope and hopefully a Formula 1 season review um, so do subscribe and we'll see you soon As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.